Jesus might not be the primary reason why people come to our churches in the future. It may very well be, what is your church's views on pick your movement? What is your church's views on police reform? What is your church's views on equal access education? What is your church's views on women, on hierarchy, on the LGBTQ community? Depending upon what your answer is, you may gain a member of your congregation or you might be repellent, not just to that person, but to the larger community, particularly if that person represents the broader spectrum of the community. Welcome to season two of the Shades of Hope podcast. These are frank conversations between two friends who are committed to the role of the church in the work of racial justice. These conversations will help you understand how Jesus' life and ministry were about justice for all people and will inspire you to actively engage in the work of reconciliation and justice wherever you find yourself. Well, Shaman, thank you so much for being here. It has been a pleasure for me personally to get to know you over the years. And it kind of started out as a, I think it was just almost an anonymous blind first meeting where I reached out or you reached out and we got together and had some lunch. And I just realized at that moment that I wanted to learn from you, to grow with you as a pastor. And so we are very thankful and grateful to have you with us on our podcast. You've known about this because we spend time together in conversation with some other pastors here in the city. But for those who don't know you and who are listening to the podcast, why don't you just give us a little bit of bio on who you are and how you got to be pastoring here in Indianapolis? Sure. Shaman Rafford. I'm originally from small town, Cadiz, Kentucky. I'm 43 now, but I've been preaching since I was 14. Wow. I started to pastor in 1996, I interned at a church that I eventually was called to. So I've been in pastoral ministry since 1996. That's the same year I graduated high school. Mm. Little Bethel is the third church I've served. I've been there since March of 2015. It's the largest congregation I've been able to serve and the first church in a large city urban context that I've been affiliated with. My education began at American Baptist College in Nashville, Tennessee. I did not finish because it was just too far to drive. And I was married (laughs) and pastoring at the time about an hour or so away. And so I ended up finishing online at, don't y'all kick me off, (laughs) Liberty University. And so I finished my education there and pursuing now a master's degree from Union Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. Married to my very best friend. We have three children. And that's pretty much it about me. Now, I will say this, Jeff. I remember how we met. Okay. One of your members and one of my former members where I served introduced us at Cracker Barrel. Yes. And they kind of just got up and left. Yes. And so we just kind of sat down and talked. And I'm not even sure if those two persons are friends anymore. 
But you and I have just maintained a really good brotherhood, man. And it's been interesting to walk alongside you, especially in the climate that we've sort of been thrust into as men and as Christian preachers, as pastors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in in a lot of ways, that's the conversation we want to have today is specifically how has the past couple of years of all of the things that seem to be falling apart, our political unrest, the social division, a global pandemic, how have those altogether affected the way that pastoral ministry has worked for you? And what are some of the things that you're noticing in your congregational life and just even in your pastoral ministry in those spaces that you haven't experienced before? It's been reminiscent of what I've seen through television, documentary, and books, what the civil rights era looked like. The the visible vitriol, the political landscape. And I think it's been interesting to see how the church has become, if in the civil rights movement, the church was a catalyst, Mm. I would say now the church is somewhat polarized by the political environment. And it's just been interesting to see the church really transform during this time. I know in my context where I serve, the people who are before me, and I'm talking about generationally, those persons who are older than I am, they're sort of a, why are y'all surprised by any of this? Mm. And then with Generation X and millennials, there's a need to revisit some cultural things that would propel us to be more prideful about who we are as being Black people and African-Americans in this country. But it's also, as of late, been interesting to watch an exodus from the faith. Mm. Persons who would say that Christianity itself is white supremacy or that the organized Western church is a slave master's religion, so to speak, and to see Black people in mass seek something to identify them with God apart from the Christian church. And so it's caused me to really become more theological in my preaching, but also to revisit social justice and its role, not just in my preaching, but also in the shaping of the total church ministry itself. That's what I would say. That is a really interesting way of describing, because I think if you would have asked me the same question, I would have given you a very similar answer with the same sorts of categories generationally for completely different reasons. Mm. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like the outcome is the same, but the means, the way that they're getting to those decisions are oftentimes the opposite. Yeah. Right. Because culturally, the division has not just been between church and world. Mm. Now it's between different demographics within the church. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. My generation does not want to seem passive or peaceful at all when it comes to injustice. We want to be loud. We want to be forceful. And I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but there is not a Martin Luther King way being espoused 
amongst the generations I just spoke. If anything, I would say it's more, and I don't want to, the word militant sometimes has these aggressive, dark connotations to it. But I think today, militantism within the framework of social justice in America is looking like holding the establishment accountable and making sure that they know our voices are going to be heard. You understand what I'm saying? Sure. I've got members in my church, older members who said, I want to support all the movements. I just don't want to go. I don't want to go to a sit-in. I don't want to go to a protest. And these are all people who are boomers, okay? Keep in mind, a lot of them have already fought these kind of battles and they're just, they are battle-worn. They are tired. But man, their children... And their grandchildren, they want to know, what can we do? How can we get mobilized? In what ways can we come together to bring about substantial, real change as opposed to articulating a dream so that it looks good on paper, but is never going to happen? Yeah. You know, hey, Pastor Shaman, it's such a blessing. This is uh, Pastor Moore. And uh, Pastor Jeff and I are ecstatic that you are with us on today. Bless you, man. Do you think in some ways your generation and younger are like Fannie Lou Hamer, just sick and tired of being sick and tired? And basically, we see this reciprocal militancy on the other spectrum in that it looks like white nationalism and some of the things that white folk would hide at some point now, they're not ashamed mm. to show some of the inequities and some of the racial injustices that our young people are saying, oh, no, we are not going to sit up under this kind of a situation. Therefore, if the church is passive, we will start movements away from the church in order to be in the streets like Black Lives Matter. Yes, yes, yes. I've had this conversation with some other friends of mine, and one of the things we talk a lot about is post-COVID-19, post the Trump presidency, post-George Floyd, how will specifically a Black church maintain its relevancy? Mm. And one of the things we all agree upon is our churches must have something that identifies them with movements connected to social justice. Yeah. Mm. So if a person comes to a church, the congregate now, keep in mind, we're all Christians too. And so this is, it conflicts what we are at the core, what I'm getting ready to say. Jesus might not be the primary reason why people come to our churches in the future. Mm-hmm. It may very well be, what is your church's views on pick your movement? Yep. Wow. What is your church's views on police reform? What is your church's views on equal access education? What is your church's views on women, on hierarchy, on the LGBTQ community? Depending upon what your answer is, you may gain a member of your congregation Or you might be repellent, not just to that person, but to the larger community, particularly if that person represents the broader 
spectrum of a community. Yeah. Yeah. It used to be, I know when I was a kid, it was how clear is the preacher? How good is the choir? And is the building comfortable to be in? Those things mean nothing now. Absolutely. That is so true. Yes, sir. Yeah. And so from your perspective as a young African-American pastor and running around with some of the young evangelical white pastors, what do you see their struggle? Because don't you think they too are having to make some decisions as to how they're going to move forward in the days to come as it relates to their younger people in their church? Mm. Because it seems to me that I'm a baby boomer And you talked about your generation and your church to the baby boomers. But these young white evangelicals are leaving the evangelical church to some extent because they feel like there is a hypocrisy. Hmm. Is that what you're seeing as a young pastor? Do you sense that the white evangelical church is going to have to decide, also make some decisions as to where they're going to stand in social justice? Uh, Yes, I would think in the long run, that's going to be something that they, i say it like this. I think white pastors, younger white evangelical pastors and black pastors have different costs to pay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and when I look at my Caucasian brothers who are pastoring in, in a lot of times legacy situations, heavily denominational. So there is a pecking order. You sort of earn your way up. You know what I mean? Like you don't see that a lot within black congregations. There's more autonomy. Yeah, not like it used to be, that's for sure. Right, right. So if I'm pastoring a congregation that has historically been conservative, but my heart is being tugged as a white man towards social justice issues, I'm at risk of not only being put out of that church, but also being ousted from the denomination. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're seeing that with Russell Moore. You're seeing that with Russell Moore. Beth Moore was like a big evangelical voice within that group. Yeah. And they just made some tweets. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that group has proven historically to be very unforgiving if the major voices seem to apparently turn coat for what are the principal ideals, written or unwritten, of the organization. (laughs) So a black pastor can say in his church on a Sunday morning, all right, everybody, here's what we're going to do. They can even meet with the deacons and officers and say, listen, y'all, this is what we want to do. And when it comes to social issues, more oftentimes than not, even if they don't agree on how to address it, they agree the issues are there and they're not going to run from them. Right. I don't think a black pastor is ever concerned with, if I do this, I'm going to lose my job and be ousted from the denomination. But my white brothers, that's like reality for them. And so you're talking about, this is your livelihood. You've gone to a Christian school for undergrad and then you went to Southern for your NDIV, and you probably stayed at Southern or went to Southwest for your D-Men. You've done nothing but pastor churches, and now you've earned your way to the church in your denomination, and your heart is convicted about something. But at the same time, you've got this, I'll say it, career that you've built up for yourself, and it's much easier for me who 
doesn't have that to lose to say, just trust God and just go for it, as opposed mm. to recognizing that these people have to deal with throwing their lives away in most cases. Now, I know we brought up Russell Moore, but think of that pastor who doesn't make Russell Moore money. Yeah. Is not on an itinerant schedule and doesn't have the notoriety and fame. That person is going to have a much harder time bouncing back and observing the losses or the risk based on those standards. While there's a part of me that wants to say, forget it, just trust God. There's another part of me just as a preacher in person that says, you know, I get it if you've got to slow walk your congregation into these kinds of things. Yeah. That's gracious. Well, I mean, you know, I'm from the South. And so (laughs) I know some pastors who in private have said to me, Sham, man, you know, I heard your sermon. I've been seeing what's going on. And I'll just, I got to tell you, you're right. But I also have to tell you, I don't know what to do. I'm afraid to stand up with you on this from my church consistently because here's what's at risk. And I don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I think that is a real situation that many pastors are facing, even on the other spectrum where they have a membership forcing them to some extent, make a call, Reverend, make a call, Pastor. Mm-hmm. Are you with our movement mm. or are you, because, you know, what I'm hearing in the culture is you're either with us or you're not. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so there are pastors that are having to, to some extent, sell their soul to white nationalism or find another career. My goodness. Yep. And that's what I'm also hearing and seeing. My goodness. My goodness. I look at, there's some voices in the faith. One of my favorite preachers is Dr. Joel Gregory. Yes. Man, Dr. Gregory can preach in a room and he's the only white person there. Yep. And you'd see black folks having church like we have church and and he's not changing who he is at all. Right. That's right. He's an example to me of someone who said, you know, I see what the cost is and I'm going to pay the cost. Yeah. He wrote a book. So great a temptation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, he wrote another book called What I Love About the Black Church. Wow. A very interesting figure who I think if people read him, but here's the thing, his reputation has been tarnished so badly on that other side. Right. That the people who would be blessed from his voice have been convinced by the wrong people to ignore anything that the man has to say. Yeah. A shame. A shame. Because he is a blessing, brother, to the body of Christ. A blessing to the body of Christ. One, One of those great examples of a person, a white preacher from the boomer generation who knows how to, I'm gonna borrow one of your phrases, Jeff, knows how to reshape what the middle looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the unfortunate part is that I don't know if we could come up with a lot more names. <laughs> That's right. You know what I'm saying? Did you get to see the Robert Jones talk? Yes. Mm. So one of the things that he said about desegregation in the South, which was just really 
convicting to me. He said, if desegregation was coming to the South, he said it was coming straight through the front door of the church. That's exactly what he said. Yeah. And so the, the church became the place where segregationists held the line. Mm. Like if we desegregate the church, we're desegregating the South. Yeah. And so we have to hold the line on the church. And so there were laws and local ordinances that were put in place that only white people could worship on Sundays in the churches. And, you know, it was just horribly segregationist. And my question today, just given this little bit of conversation is how is the white church continuing to hold the line today? Oh my goodness, man. Because it, it's got to still be true, right? If equity and justice is going to come to these United States, it's going to need to come right through the front doors of the church. Man, I'm going to say it, and these are my thoughts, and I'll own them. <laughs> let, me, let me say that. <laughs> uh, what is said church doing after the benediction for causes that affect minorities? Hmm. Food pantries, uh, giving money for tutoring. Nope. Okay. Nope. How are they voting? Exactly. How are they shaping downtown? What kind of power are you helping as a congregation to create for those who are powerless? That's what I would ask. I'm not a kumbaya kind of a dude when it comes to the blended church idea. Mm -hmm. And I think it looks good for multiple ethnicities and cultures to worship together. I love it. Mm -hmm. My problem, man, is when church is over, man. When church is over, I'm black. I'm not a member of the church. Mm. You're white, man, woman. Whenever you leave church, you are a white person. In church, we are the same. But we are treated differently when church is over. So I'm interested in seeing what those congregations are doing downtown. What I've seen in my lifetime is the large white institutional church of the community is where the power brokers go. Yep. <laughs> and they don't want to share that power, man. And so They'll invite anyone into the local settings and congregations. And again, I love that. My problem is, where are you whenever black people as a group are gathering because of pain, because of injustice, because of unfairness, because of inequity? If you are visible on Sunday or if you want us to be visible and with you in your settings, where are you when we have to deal with this stuff over here and we look around and we don't have people who are of the powerful majority to not speak on our behalf, but to speak with us to the people in power that look like you? Yep. I was thinking about this on the way here, man. Moses is put in that basket. He is literally on a death sentence. He's on death's row because he is a Hebrew boy. And Pharaoh wants all the Hebrew boys killed 
from two years and under, right? If you're three years and older, you're going to be a slave. That's the plan. His mom puts him in an ark, and he ends up where Pharaoh's daughter is taking a bath. She knows he's a Hebrew and should die. She also knows her dad knows the difference between a Hebrew and an Egyptian. The only reason why this Hebrew boy grows up in the palace is because an Egyptian who was part of the powerful minority spoke up on his behalf. Preach now. She interceded. Come on. She interceded for him, man. (laughs) Black people can do a lot when we have people who are of the powerful majority or even the powerful minority in Moses' case. When those who are powerful recognize those persons who don't have the power by the societal means, when they speak up for them, those people will become able to speak for themselves. So this is how far we are away from that vision. Mm. Dr. Robert P. Jones said on last evening that in 2016, 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Mm. In 2020, 84%. Mm. The numbers went up. Yep. They went up. Now, imagine this for a second, right? Okay, if now I'm a black Christian, I'm a black man in America, right? And so I'm asking myself, those evangelicals, right? They go to churches, and some of them, not all, go to church with black people. My question is, how can a black person, knowing that stat, worship alongside someone in God's house who doesn't care about the prosperity of their house when they leave? It is just a question of mine. And again, I'm not against people going to church wherever they want to go. My issue is, where is this brotherly love and heartfelt sentiment that we see on Sunday whenever we leave? Like, where is it then? That's what I'm concerned about. And that's a shame, Dr. Moore, because whether Donald Trump can run for president again or not, whoever wants to run next, all they have to do is run the script back clean it up, and be more intelligent in speech. And that person with the same ideals can live in the White House, too. Exactly. (laughs) And then a lot of them are beginning to sharpen their rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If the Republican Party finds someone who is cooler than Mike Pence, brash like Trump, but can speak the king's English, the Republicans will have their presidents two, three, four, five, six terms. Not one person, but just the party being able to win. Because that majority is going to continue to vote the way they vote. And the fact that the numbers have gone up, it doesn't surprise me. It's disappointing. Yeah. And this spiritual battle, and I think that's when you look at it at its core, the church of Jesus Christ is in the midst of a spiritual battle. And I know it's not new because again, Dr. Jones said again last evening, if the church has said no to slavery, it would not have come to fruition. Yep. If they had said no to Jim Crow, it would not have come to fruition. Mm. And they are not saying no to Donald Trump. Mm. And 
whatever vomited him up because he didn't bring something new. It regurgitated him up in this personification of what really, unfortunately, I thought was the landscape of non-Christians. But it seems like when you look at the trends that the Church of Jesus Christ, as they call themselves, is just as complicit in this inequity and it breaks God's heart. It breaks God's heart. Yeah. In my lifetime, I think it's not without a sense of irony that Donald Trump is a Christian president. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, yeah. he was voted in by Christians. I mean, I'm interested to know out of that 84% of persons who want to see him reelected again, I'm interested to see what percentage of them are Christians. I bet that number is well over 84%. Well over. I bet it's closer to 90 to 93%, something like that. Well, that number is the number of white evangelicals. 84% of white evangelicals in North America voted for re-election. Right. That's what I was trying to articulate. Oh, okay. The okay. numbers went up. Dr. Jones is talking about in the white evangelical world. Now, the first time they voted, they said, well, we didn't know he was like this. But now we realize they did really know. And then they came along and actually voted more in favor. So it was more of the non-believing population that voted against him, mm. which is really an indictment of the church. And while we have created this podcast to bring young men like you who are going to be the voices of tomorrow, mm figure out how do we go forward in such a landscape that we are seeing today. He talked about the fact that during January the 6th, that just as prevalent as the Confederate flag was in that riot, so was the Christian flag being waved. And so were they carrying Bibles. And Dr. Gunning Francis shared they even had prayer after they took over that space. Yeah. What images, what, I mean. Conquest. What a paradox. Conquest. Yeah, conquest, yeah. And so that's what we are struggling against. And that could be, if we're not careful, the fall of America mm. is our division that has been manifest so openly and so outwardly mm. in our culture today. Mm. Mm. You said it well, Doc. Dr. Moore, you said it well, man. I watched a documentary on that day about January 6th, and it's striking as a Christian. It looked a lot like the conquistadors conquering South America. Mm. <laughs> you know, it looked like people who were not concerned about the political as much as they were war-ready. War ready. For the life of me, I can't understand why those two things are equated. It could be how the Western church, again, Dr. Jones was right when he said it, that had the church said no to slavery, wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. If the church fights against war, wars won't happen. Yep. But you see, historically, that the Western church from Western Europe to American shores, it just seems that an infusion of God into whatever we want to do 
makes whatever we do appear to be sanctioned by God. And that includes just this, this spirit in America that is one of conquest, one of conquering. And that's something that I fear is not going anywhere, no matter who's in the White House. There will always be in this country people who feel that their idea or their way or their principle should conquer someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that even in contemporary culture, this thing with cancel culture and things like this. We want what we think and how we feel to defeat someone else. And it's unfortunate that this is where we are. But really, these last three years, Donald Trump's third year as president, I mean, you could argue his entire presidency, but his third year on and the death of George Floyd is sort of like a powder keg that amplified that. It just says a lot about where we are as a nation. Yeah, Absolutely. And now we have the new way of reframing the conversation in the school board meetings all around the country, mm-hmm. in the state government legislative sessions all around the country. We have the new enemy of CRT, which is mm-hmm. sweeping the nation literally faster than <laughs> anything I've ever seen. Something that was so obscure six months ago, nine months ago, 12 months ago, is on the tip of everyone's tongue when they sit down to eat dinner. And Mm. it feels like when we talk about holding the line, we've always got to find ways to reframe the conversation and make it about something else in order to continue to maintain the status quo. So Mm. these things come up, right? right? So now everybody's in the streets. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's got hashtag fever. And the immediate next move is a demonization of an obscure theory in order to stop the movement. Mm. How have you seen that sort of played out? I know you're very aware of a lot of the things that are happening. We've even had this conversation a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Critical race theory. I'll be transparent here and say I'd never myself heard (laughs) of the theory. Me either. Until conservative white folks started talking about it. I've got friends who, you know, who are on like the front lines of social movements in their cities. Mm -hmm. Scholars. Right. Who've never mentioned it to me in conversation. It never has come up. So it speaks to this need for an enemy to make my fight more valid. Say more about that. The pandemic made me watch a lot of movies and TV and stuff. And when <laughs> when The Last Dance came on, mm-hmm. I, you know, I just love, you know, I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan. And to know that Michael Jordan would make up reasons to hate his opponents so that he would play every opponent with a chip on his shoulder just blew me away. I think they were playing against the Sonics and George Carl, the coach, didn't speak to Michael Jordan walking through the restaurant and Michael Jordan was insulted. Oh, he's not going to speak to me. Oh, okay. And so he lit them up for 40 points a night and stuff like this. <laughs> Other defensive players saying they believed they could stop Michael Jordan if they only did this. And it just made him have this chip on his shoulder. I think for evangelicals, the conjured chip on their shoulders, critical race theory, it's a boogeyman 
the way they've portrayed it and presented it has only been done to somehow make what they're doing seem valuable or righteous. Yep. You know, oh, this is a theory that's somehow against the Bible and blah, 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 blah. And keep in mind, there are conservative black scholarship that wants to also speak against it too. And I'm not going to mention anybody's names here, but it's sad to me that these things exist. I remember, man, this was back, what, early 2000s, the conservative church was against Harry Potter. Yep. Oh, that J.K. Rowling, she's demonic. She's turning our kids into wizards and witches. And, and these are the same people who I know for a fact you had the trunk or treat at your church and y'all were dressing up in costumes this year and all of a sudden you're mad at this. I mean, it's making up these things to somehow make themselves seem righteous. It's phony and it's fake. It's fake. It's a. It's really the big lie. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it really is, man. I mean, yeah. if you ask the average conservative evangelical, give me one tenet of the theory on critical race theory. Give me, just give me one. They can't even do it. Yeah, I can't do it, and I'm an African American male, <sighs> educated, pastoring. Like you, I didn't know it even existed, but it's like they had to dig up something to negate the winds of justice. There you go. Yeah. That were blowing in America. Yeah. And they said, we've got to find a way to shut this down. We don't have Malcolm X. We don't have Minister Farrakhan. Mm. Well, we got to come up with something mm. to negate the winds that are blowing white kids and black kids in the streets marching. Mm. Mm. And so it's a manufactured lie. Mm. It's of Satan. Mm. And somehow believers choose to believe it. Right, right, right. It blows my mind. Every time I hear someone older and white talk about critical race theory at a school board meeting and Someone's recording them and then they'll post a video. You know, it's just, you could tell the person is uneducated. You can tell they haven't read a book in their life. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't even read the Bible, really. <laughs> I mean, think of this for a second, right? Even if we remove the title critical race theory, if we just espouse the idea that in this nation, there are minorities who, because of being in a majority culture, that there is a majority, that the minority does not have the same power or privilege as the majority. And I'm not even mentioning race. I'm just talking about numbers, right? I'm just talking about numbers. And we live in a democracy, and so the numbers favor the majority. I'm not being biased. That's just, that's just the way numbers work. To deny that as a truth. Oh, it's not that way. It's not that way. It's not. What it speaks to is we know what the truth is too, and the truth threatens what being part of the majority has given me, and I don't want to lose the privilege I have from just being part of the majority. And that's our issue with critical race theory, even though it's still a boogeyman to them. It's something that's not real to them. It's not. And that is how human nature works, right? So if you are a part of the 
power class, you want to keep right. it. If you're not a part right. of it, you want to get it. Right. This is how human beings have lived since we have a story of human beings. Now, mm. the challenge is that the gospel sets us free from the human power grab. Mm. Jesus said, if you want to become great, you must become the least. And he said, when we are willing to know the truth, the truth will set us free. The challenge that we have in our particular context is that the people who are fighting for the power to hold the power are also people who are supposed to be living according to the pattern of submission and humility. Mm. And so, again, the church, if this is going to change, it's going to come through the front door. It's our discipleship that is weak. Mm. And I say our, I mean white evangelical discipleship. Mm. Our inability to see that grasping for power is the opposite activity that the gospel calls us to. <laughs> That's good, man. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> That's a good way of saying it. And it's actually the way that Paul defines spiritual immaturity. He says that the Spirit's given for the maturing of the body, so we grow into the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, what we're recovered from, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Mm. That is the description of the white evangelical church right now. Mm. Particularly when it comes to critical race theory, we are being tossed mm. and we are being deceived into believing that losing something is the end of the road for us. Instead of walking the way of Jesus, who said that the losing of something is actually the gaining of the whole world. Amen. You know who can understand that, Jeff? Christians who read the Bible. <laughs> and they believe in Jesus Christ as yep. being the living word. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has led them to that truth yep. because they have read it. In the word of God. Jesus says things like, as you've done to the least of these, so have you done unto me. You see, one of the first moves of the church in the book of Acts is that the people, they become socialists and they sell their stuff and they bring it to the apostles' feet. And the apostles make sure that no one leaves empty. And so now the people who where the least of these are no longer the least of these, now in the society, they can look at their neighbor and say, we all have the same thing. Yep. And what that means is now we're, it's not about what we have or don't have. It's about removing the stigma of status. It's removing rich and poor. Yep. It's removing Hebrew and Greek. It's removing male and female, which in Christ. Those things are supposed to go away. Our thing is today, we think that goes away when we have different people in our local churches. Right. But in Acts, it was societal. And it's not utopian neither. It's the church. They faced persecution because of this. They were killed because of this. It was not something that was culturally acceptable when the temple was being affected and the apostles are looking like rabble rousers who are continue to talk about this guy who we killed the other day on the cross. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. If they're Christians, they have to read the word of God, be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can teach them, can lead them to this truth. 
Yep. You know, that's a great, great, great point in that when Christ came on the scene, one of the reasons that the Jews encouraged the Romans to crucify him was that he did not fulfill their image of what he should be, yep. that he should be our king, mm. our conquering king. Mm. And so I see a parallel in white nationalism. Mm. We just found out that Dylan Roof, when he massacred those folk in the Mother Emanuel Church there in Charleston, South Carolina, came in the name of Jesus. Mm. And literally... In his jail cell now are images of a white Jesus. So in his mind and in his followers' mind, this is a white person's world. Mm. And that anybody that's not white can be a threat. And so we have to kill them. Mm. Yeah. I'm seeing some parallels in white nationalism and the reason the Jewish people partner with the Romans to execute Christ because he was not acting the way that they wanted him to act instead of them embracing the kingdom that he was trying to spread. Mm -hmm. And that's what you alluded to, this kingdom of love, this kingdom of humility, this kingdom of shared purpose. Mm. Mm. Which is the description of the church, right? You just described who we're supposed to be, and you could make the argument. You didn't have to go too far to make this argument, because I do believe Paul calls the church, the people of God are the righteousness of God, right? Yes. And so we are this social construct that is representing in our lives together and to the watching world what justice looks like. You could call us a society of righteousness, the Greek is righteousness, but it can also easily go justice. So we are the social justice of God. <laughs> I like that. That's who we are. I mean, that's what we were created for. We'd be light, salt and light in the world, offering an alternative way of thinking about how humans make their way through the world. Not with power, not with violence, not in divisive groups, but in unity with humility and submission looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. I had a social justice professor at American Baptist College, Dr. Janet Wolf. She said one day in class that there can be no justice without lamentation. Mm. And you can tell, Jeff, I mean, I, I'm saying that because you lament what you see. And it's refreshing as a black person to see a white person with your kind of passion. This is not just lip service to you. You're actually not just doing the personal work to see these things through a biblical lens, but you're also doing the literal work to help bring about justice in social areas. You're doing it. How many evangelicals would you say, I mean, obviously 84% Trump voters, you know, we got that number out there, but how many of them would you say read the Bible through the lens of lamentation? Because truth only comes after we lament. Right. How many would you say read the Bible that way? Well, I would just say in general, white evangelicals, we experience lament at a very individual level when something bad happens to me, but we don't have a construct generationally in our country for having to practice lament. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like you lament when you lose. <laughs> You mm. lament when you're when you're on the outside. You lament mm. when there's loss. You lament when there is 
unearned oppression and victimization. And I would just say that we don't understand lament. We have no reason to pick it up as a spiritual practice. We are trying to, in our congregation, get there. But that even has to be, in some ways, manufactured because we don't have a lot of lived experience that says crying out to God, when will the relief come? Like Mm. that's just not a dominant thread in the narrative of the white evangelical experience. And I would just say even the white American experience. Oh, okay. Now I would also say individually people have tough lives, right? But as a people in general, we don't have language for lament because we've not necessarily had to take it up. Wow. 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 Well, see, I, I think what Black people call lamentation is really just an expression of our own pain and anger. Yeah. And so when we lament, it's often seen through what we do to ourselves in our community. Mm. But as far as lamenting something within or for ourselves in America, I believe that Black Americans are fighting, are doing what it takes to make those things happen. But man, when there is a foot on your neck that won't let you get up to do it, it's very difficult to continue fighting the same fight over and over again. What I've seen a lot of my peers echo in the last few years is glancing back the last 40 to 50 years, just looking at the different kind of movements that have emerged with Black people at the helm of them, it looks like the same thing over and over and over again. I think Dr. Moore quoted Fanny Hamer, I'm tired of being tired. Yep. That's a sentiment. That is a sentiment. Yep. And I think for us, one of the, I would say, maturity opportunities for white evangelicals is to sit with people who have experienced those real losses and to hear and feel the weight. That's how we learn what that sort of pain feels like. And that's Mm -hmm. how we can also begin to enter in. I mean, the spirit gives us the opportunity to have fellowship, right? Carry one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. Mm -hmm. But until we are willing to sit with our brothers and sisters who are on the margins and to hear the pain and to understand what the effects of that pain are over generations, we won't ever learn the spiritual practice of lament. Mm. And I think we can get it in some ways individually when bad things happen to us, but there's something different when it's a part of my people, Mm. you know, that's a different way of thinking about pain. And Israel had that right. Early Christians Mm. had that, Mm. but I think the modern evangelical white church, especially just doesn't, we're disconnected from it because we've been able to be. Mm. Mm. Wow. Which is why it's been so good to be friends with you guys. You have been so kind and generous and gentle as I have made my way down that road. And Mm. your willingness to share the deep, deep wounds that you carry uh, just as a matter of making your way in the world remind me that the the privilege I have is what costs you. Mm. Mm. Amen. I'm humbled by that, man. I'm humbled by that. Amen. Well, gentlemen, this was good.
Excellent. If nobody else hears this, it was a joy to be able to have this conversation with you, Shalman. And Ah. thank you so much for being with us. And Dr. Moore, it is always just a pleasure to be able to sit with you and learn from you and to be pastored by you. And I really appreciate that. Well, both of you are refreshing springs of water for me to drink from to keep me fresh. Your perspective, Pastor Jeff, as a white evangelical young preacher and shaman brand new on the scene, so young, but yet so wise. Oh, man. He gives me hope for the African-American church for generations to come. Mm. I'm blessed to be a part in both of your lives. And so we were grateful. Love y'all too, man. Love y'all too, man. Shaman, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. It's a joy to be able to work with you in the city. We are excited about the ministry that you've got going at Little Bethel. And we pray that God's grace and wisdom and courage would continue to lead you as you lead his people. Thanks for being with us. Thank y'all, man. Anytime, call me. Let me know when. Again. Right on. (laughs) Thanks, brother. Peace. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shades of Hope. We would like to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and questions at shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. That's shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. We would also appreciate it if you could leave us a review and rate us wherever you access this podcast. Thank you again, and may God bless you as you follow Jesus and strive to make this world a better place for all of God's children.